All right, please go ahead and open your Bibles back up to Matthew chapter 2. It'll make it easier to follow along. Um, I love heavy, wet snow, said no one ever. Uh, but I do love me some Mission Sunday, and one of my favorite parts of Mission Sunday is our little tradition of hanging up these uh, national flags around the church and bringing them up front. But as you notice, they're all draped alongside some of the uh, usual Christmas decor, uh, which brings us to this question. Why are we celebrating world missions during the Christmas Advent season? Why are we allowing children to carry highly flammable flags very closely <laughs> to Advent candles? <laughs> I don't know if I thought that one through really, but uh, so what, if anything, does Advent and Christmas have to do with world mission? Well, the short and maybe surprising answer to this question is everything. World missions actually has everything to do with Christmas. Uh, let me be so bold as to even say that apart from God's mission to the whole world, Christmas doesn't make much sense at all, which also makes Christmas a lot less joyful. But thankfully, we have a passage before us today that happens to make wonderful sense of Christmas, its true meaning, its true joy, and I hope it'll help us worship this Advent season. But there's a problem that, that confronts us right off the bat, and that is many of us have heard this story countless times, you know, the story of the three wise men visiting baby Jesus and it probably feels worn out, and it's a little hard for us to imagine how it's going to invite us into deep wonder and true joy. And I definitely sympathize with that. I felt the same way until not too long ago, until I was assigned the task of preaching and had to find a, a passage to preach on. But I'm so glad to have come across this passage because... Well, actually, before I move on, I want to start by correcting just a few popular misconceptions that we bring to this story, uh, often conveyed by nativity scenes that we have set up at home, you know, like the one sitting on top of my mantle. Um, the first thing that we need to know is that when the events of this passage take place, Jesus isn't a baby anymore. In fact, he's probably between one and two years old perhaps even speaking in full sentences. Parents, you know how scary that transition is. And secondly, we also have no idea how many wise men visited Jesus. The Bible never tells us the exact number. Uh, all we're told is that there were at least two. And even then, they traveled probably in this very big caravan because that was the only way to stay alive, traveling large distances back then. So now that we have some of these popular misconceptions out of the way, here's how this passage is going to bring us into true joy. It's going to show us by way of, of sneak preview or a little microcosm of this glorious new thing that God is about to do in the whole world, which is this, that through Jesus, God is guiding and inviting the whole world to enter into his joy. The joy of his very presence and invitation into his very own house. All right? 
So that's where we're going. But all this begins with an introduction to the very first worshipers of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, who, by the way, uh, they turn out to be the last people you would expect to be the first worshipers of Jesus. Uh, Please go ahead and read with me verse 1. Verse 1. Now after Jesus was born. Actually, I'm just going to pause right there for a second. Uh, Because before we move on, I I want everyone to keep in mind that what is about to follow is going to tell us some important things about why Jesus came to earth. What the implications of his birth actually are for you, for me, for everyone. So uh, with that in mind, let's go ahead and keep on reading verse 1 again. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. So the first thing that we're told about the birth of Jesus is that some wise men came from the east. Yawn, right? Now this may not mean much to us, But for the original readers, this probably got their attention real quick. It made jaws drop for a few different reasons. First, because of the direction that these wise men came from, which was east. Now, what's the big deal about that? Well, in the Old Testament, here's who's often described as coming from the east. Israel's enemies. That's who. It was always, or more often than not, unclean nations, invading foreigners, evil oppressors of God's people who would come from the east. So generally speaking, east is the worst direction to be coming from. In fact, you know what direction sinful humanity was sent when they were cast out of the garden? East. Genesis even tells us that when Cain and his line settled away from the presence of the Lord, Where'd they settle? East of Eden. This is a a metaphor, a real living picture of being actually away from God's presence. Now, if coming from the east weren't bad enough, we're told that, behold, it's wise men who come from the east. Now, whenever you see that word, behold, uh, it's there to draw our, our attention to something really important. Because the word translated here as wise men is actually magi. You know, we've all heard that word before, I'm sure, around Christmas time. But wise men is a very subdued, polite translation of this word magi because it's a title. And here's what it actually is. Here's what magi from the East actually connotes. They were world-famous practitioners of pagan divination, sorcery, astrology. These magi often served as royal priests in the most heinous, idolatrous cults of the nations. All these things, by the way, scripture completely forbids because all such occultic practices represented profound rebellion against the Lord. And yet, behold, behold, Here they are following 
an unusual rising star, perhaps unlike anything these magi have seen before, here they come, all the way to Jerusalem. What's their intent? Is it good? Why have they come? Why have these unclean, idolatrous, pagan priests come all this way and at such great risk and expense to themselves? The unexpected, almost shocking answer is that they've come seeking the king of the Jews so that they might worship him. Now, why in the world would they do this? One reasonable explanation is that these magi in the East, they were exposed to Old Testament prophecies, probably from the Israelites themselves, who happened to spend a lot of involuntary time in the East while they were in exile. Jews were often political prisoners or slaves in the East, in places like Persia and Babylon. But the Magi heard these Old, Old Testament prophecies likely, and they heard how altogether they were predicting a future where God would raise up a king from the Jews that would eventually rule over the entire world and usher in an age of unimaginable flourishing. That's worth going out of your way for, folks. Now, considering that these prophecies you know, they're easily accessible and embedded in the Jewish scriptures. You would think that Israel would be the most excited to hear that the Messiah, that perhaps the king of the Jews might be revealing himself as promised. They've been waiting for this basically since the beginning of the kingdom, right, of Israel. Uh, but shockingly, that's not the case. Let's keep reading to see how King Herod, the, the present king of Israel, as well as all Jerusalem, responds to this news in verse 3. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So how, how does Herod the king and eventually uh, and even all Jerusalem with him respond to this potentially amazing news? about the arrival of their long-awaited Messiah, their Savior King, with a static elation. You know, let's get the uh, welcoming party together. How about even just maybe cracking a little smile? You know, this brightens up your day, doesn't it? <laughs> no, none of that, not even a little smile. Instead, what we're told is that they were troubled by this news. You could also translate this word as agitated, you know, like putting on a scratchy sweater, <laughs> or troubled or disturbed, kind of like how you would respond to really terrible news, the kind of news that might seriously inconvenience you, set you back, ruin your life. And I think that's exactly how Herod, the current king of Israel, heard this news about the potential arrival of another king who might displace him. Because here's what we actually know about Herod from the historical record. Uh, to quote Mark Strauss, Herod was an extraordinarily gifted individual, a savvy politician, a powerful warrior, 
effective ruler, visionary builder, a real Renaissance man. I think some of you are like, you know, Herod for president. If he were, <laughs> he were to run, I'm, I'm pretty sure he'd do pretty well. But there's more to Herod because Herod also had a profoundly dark side. He was paranoid, cruel, ruthless, especially when he felt like his power or position was being threatened. In this sense, Herod has the same heart as every sinner. Everyone on some level feels threatened by the holy God. But Herod, okay, he he was an extreme example because here's what Herod would do when he felt his power being threatened. He went so far as to have his wife executed. He didn't stop there. He also had three of his own sons executed, not to mention another long list of other friends, so-called friends, and relatives. And this is why even the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, is quoted as saying this, that he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. And, and the reason he said that is because even though Herod would openly murder his own children, he still considered himself a devout practicing Jew. We're told he strictly avoided breaking certain rules, like eating pork. Maybe that was easier than, you know, to keep than thou shalt not kill. Uh, and that leads us to this next irony, where Herod, after learning about the star, about this star from the Magi, he proceeds to have an intense Bible study. All right? So he, he assembles the most knowledgeable Bible scholars and experts in all the land to discern where this Christ might be born. All right? And here's what these Bible experts of Israel, here's what they report back about where the Messiah will be born in verse 5. Verse 5. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, or for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Uh, now, what does, what does Herod decide to do with this great truth, uh, this invaluable insight into God's heart, plan, his will for his people? Is Herod now going to appropriate the scriptures so that he can ob- obey them, you know, build his life upon them as the very words of life? No, because as it turns out, Herod is something of a selective reader of the scriptures, a very selective user of the scriptures. You know, the kind that present themselves as very interested in the things of God, even appearing to take parts of it very seriously. Hey, I eat clean. I say amen to the Bible when it tells me where the Christ is going to be born. I believe that. And yet, what becomes obvious for all to see is that Herod is ultimately only interested in the scriptures when they serve him somehow. Or when they further his very narrow personal and political agendas. 
which also means this. Herod is representative of those who live not ultimately for God's kingdom, but rather for their own tiny skull-sized kingdoms, as the author David Foster Wallace so aptly put it. So, of course, Herod stands as a sobering warning to all of us. Because here's the question that will one day be asked, be required of all of us. And that question is, whose kingdom are you seeking? Who is actually king? Because whoever that is, you know, whether it be you or Jesus, you know, this is going to be the one that you spend your minutes, your weeks, your days actually worshiping. Now, tragically, what we see next from Herod is signs of false worship. And we see it as Herod tries to commission the Magi to help him zero in on the location of this uh, king of the Jews in Bethlehem. Let's read from verse 7. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for this child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now we all know in the course of the story, this was pure veneer, pure facade. Herod's out to kill this king of the Jews. He's not going to spare his wife or kids. What's he going to care? You know? And yet, uh, you know what we actually find here? Herod gives the first royal commission found in the Gospel of Matthew. It starts with the command to go. And it's given under this pretense of false worship. Now there's another royal commission involving worship that we're going to look at later at the end of this Gospel. It's quite the contrast, but it's getting us ready for that contrast. But at this moment, the Magi actually believe Herod's pious intentions. And, you know, this is some comfort to me. It's like, you know, sometimes we're going to get fooled. And it's really at no fault of our own. We just have people who are going to mislead us and try to exploit us. And, but you're going to also seek God's good intervention along the way. Anyways, the Magi accept the commission and they go. Let's keep reading from verse 9. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Uh, so we're told that this unusual star or star-like object that rose above them went before them which is a very interesting way to put it. Because in the Old Testament, there's one figure who we're told went before his people to guide them. And of course, that's the Lord himself, who in a pillar of cloud and fire by day and by night would lead his people out during the Exodus to the fulfillment of his will and promises, delivering them from bondage to slavery into the promised land. 
So this star that's going before the Magi, and all of a sudden comes to a halt. Not because something went wrong, but because it has at last brought them to the house of the king. And what a house it is. Actually, it wasn't much of a house, I imagine. But when the, when the Magi actually realized that they finally arrived at their long-sought-after destination, here's how they respond in verse 10. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's, so, it's, it's actually hard to quite capture in words what these Magi were experiencing at this moment, but this is the kind of joy that you might experience once or maybe twice in your lifetime. It's a level of elation that, that makes grown men just weep and shout for joy. Uh, that's, what, that's what rejoicing exceedingly with great joy is trying to convey to us here. So let's not, you know, I don't want to rush past it. And, and what's most striking about that is this. It's clear that God has done this for them, hasn't he? He's brought them to this joy. From the very beginning of the story, it is the Lord who the scriptures tell us owns all the starry hosts. We get the sense right away, it is he who has initiated this call and mission upon the Magi's lives. And he was guiding them every step of the way. Even to this very point of exceeding joy. In fact, uh, one could even surmise that God is just as sovereign over the lives of these magi as he is over the very stars, every star in the universe. And what... (laughs) So this is actually quite the weird, unexpected story that we're seeing unfold here, that these unclean pagan Gentiles from the nations who through the course of of their lives worshiped and served idols in bondage to these false gods, we see that God has not forgotten them, that he's drawing them out because he has something much, much better for them even offering them true, excessive joy. I don't think it's because they deserved it. It's as if through the the course of these magi's tainted and sinful lives, God himself, by his mercy and grace, was preparing these men who were far outside the laws and boundaries of Israel guiding them step by step by step into the very presence of his son, who was born to be their king. In fact, all right, you know, the Lord sent this miraculous blazing light to, to go before them and to lead them to this house. And, you know, like I said, he did this already for other people who were in bondage back in the day. It's just what he does I hope we're all getting a sense of of God's heart for the nations, that what he did for Israel, he actually 
was, it was a little microcosm, a living picture of what he wanted to do for the whole world. And that this is what actually is the meaning of Christ into our world and why we're all here as Gentiles, probably formerly pagan, worshiping the king of the Jews. And this is why uh, Isaiah the prophet predicted in our first reading today, and the nations shall come to your light and that they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news to the praises of the Lord. Mm. Oh, and I, I, I just got to throw this in, but the very last title that, that Jesus declares for himself in the book of Revelation is, I am the root of David and the bright morning star. That's, that's the last title that Jesus gives himself in, in, in our scriptures. So, this is actually a little, little snapshot of how the Lord works in all of our lives, whether we be falsely pious Jews or openly wicked Gentiles, uh, which is that the Lord, and only the Lord, can move us from false worship and its many false joys to true joy and true worship. And true worship is exactly the very next thing that we're shown in this passage and how these magi bring their joy to completion, right? It's not just, ah, no, you got to hug somebody. You got to high five. You got to do something to celebrate. Look with me at verse 11, verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Ah, you just gotta love, you know, the very last verse uh, in this passage. God is guiding them still, isn't he? Away from Herod, away from trouble, keeping them on mission. Hmm. So these magi, they finally find what they're looking for, and all they can do is just fall down and worship. That's the only appropriate response here. And this is not the, the, the kind of false worship that's offered by the likes of Herod. Because this, this actually turns out to be costly worship. Actually fit for a king. Because the Magi lay down their gifts before Jesus, don't they? Gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's not to say that the gifts were just gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's gifts and then gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We're just like, like an amazing bounty. And, and all these costly treasures, they're representing the best of their best. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All these things are exceedingly delightful, precious. And this, this brings me to ask, and it's kind of like the last question I asked, who are you worshiping? And here's one way we can all kind of figure this out. Where do you expect to find joy? In yourself? And growing your own little pseudo kingdom of, of personal honor, wealth, and power? Or you expect to find joy lying prostrate on the floor? 
as long as it is in the presence of the true and living king. Because where you seek your joy, my friends, that's where the proverbial treasures of your life will be, where you're, you're going to put your gold, your frankincense and myrrh. That is, what you worship is ultimately going to get the best of you, whether you realize it or not. And once again, Herod stands as a sobering reminder here because here's a guy who literally sacrificed everything. His wives, children, family, friends, his nation, and likely his very own soul on that altar of self-worship, seeking after nothing more than personal honor, wealth, and power. Uh, I'd encourage you to learn more of Herod's story because it was, it's, it's far from joyful, especially at the end. Pathetic, I would actually describe it as. But returning to our passage, I did want to point out one strange thing about the Magi's uh, joyful worship. It's strange. It's, it's always been there in the text, but for some reason, it's easy for us to, to not notice it. We're told that these Magi, these great men of high status, world-renowned and recognition, serving in king's courts. They're giving these gifts and they're humbling themselves before a mere child. That's weird. Who on the surface appears to be a nobody. Here he's living in this dump of a little peasant house in nowhere land, Bethlehem. Well, uh, we won't understand the significance of Jesus or Bethlehem, by the way. It's true meaning and value until God himself reveals it to us, right? That's why Bethlehem is greater than all these other places in Judah. It wasn't, I mean, economically speaking, but God decided I'm going to put my king there. Well, I think this is, uh, this is a strange scene, again, uh, of great ones worshiping a no one. But it tells us a lot about who it is. It's a, it's a foreshadow. It's a preview of who they're actually worshiping. Because remember in verse 2, the specific title that the Magi had already had for Jesus, it was King of the Jews. This particular title, King of the Jews, appears here in chapter 2, and then it completely disappears from Matthew's gospel until the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. That is, when Jesus is referred to again, but mockingly, as the king of the Jews, he's experiencing ultimate belittling. He's unjustly tried, he's horrifically beaten, and then finally and disgracefully, he is crucified unto death. And at his cross, you know, they put up a sign overhead that reads, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. You see, it wasn't ultimately the Magi who were humbling themselves before this king. No, rather, it was the king who was humbling himself before 
us. The Son of God taking on flesh, entering right into the heart of a world broken and ravaged by sin, and he even humbled himself to the point of death on a cross where he took upon himself not just the sins of Israel, but the sins of the whole world. The sins of all tribes, tongues, and nations. Which also means this, right? The cross also was not what we thought it was on the surface. More was happening there. And if you want to understand its true meaning, where do you have to go? To the scriptures. And just... So we know that the scriptures do not represent the cross as the point of Jesus' defeat, but rather of his very victory over all wicked powers and principalities, who, if you noticed, uh, in Herod and in Jerusalem, they, they had no power to actually stop. God's will was unfolding, and no one could get in the way, no matter how hard they tried. And this cross was actually the place of true coronation, an exaltation of the king of the Jews who will ultimately reign as the king of heaven and earth. And I just, I just have to, I, I, I know I'm going a little long, but I want to point this out. Remember in verse 11 uh, that Mary, Mary was specifically mentioned there as being a witness to the child um, being worshipped and, and given these gifts by the nations. Mary, the witness to the exaltation. All four Gospels actually tell us that Mary was also a witness who stood at a distance at the cross. Because it is now at the cross that all the nations are invited to come and enter into the house of the Lord. It is where Jesus is inviting the whole world to come and know the joy of the Lord and truly worship. For our joy, for his glory. You know, which is why Matthew not only opens with the story of a rising star and a royal commission and joyful worship, he also happens to end his gospel with that as well. Let's go ahead and turn to Matthew 28. Flip over there with me to the end. Matthew 28, 28, and we'll read from verse 16 through 20. It's this famous passage that's known as the Great Commission. I'll read verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Ah, the, the risen Lord Jesus, guiding his disciples where they need to go, going ahead of them. What does that remind you of? All right, let's keep reading. Verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. They worshipped. But some doubted. I love this, and I wish we had more time to explore this, but I'll just leave it at this for now. Even if you're struggling with doubt today, know that Jesus is still calling you to himself. He's inviting you to worship. And he is with you even in the midst of the doubt. As who? As who? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 18. 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. By the way, this is what we mean when we proclaim Jesus as the Christ, that all authority, all power in heaven and on earth is secure in his perfectly loving and righteous hand, his nail-marked hands, which means now we're free and empowered to receive this true royal commission that starts with verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, worshipers of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, let us go and make disciples of all the nations because he has done it. He is doing it. He is the morning star, risen now and forever, and he is calling all nations to himself. So, as we go, wherever our master chooses to to send us, you know, whether it be right next door to Judea or to a neighboring but strange area like Samaria or even to the very ends of the earth, remember who is with you always to the very end of the age. Going before you for your joy as well as the joy of the whole world. Amen.